Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. everyone. It's Lori LeBay with Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I hope you enjoyed our introduction music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. Now, today I am so thrilled that we are doing a show again in collaboration with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team, and the series is going to be about caring and coping during the pandemic. As usual, before I introduce our guest today, I always like to give a couple of shout outs. So first, I want to um, give a big shout out to the Memory Cafe Directory. They do a fantastic job and have organized all the cafes in five different countries, so they're easily accessible for us to find. In addition, they have a Cafe Connect Center, which shows which ones are virtual. There are more that are coming out back online and in person, but right now there's still many that are um, virtual, which anybody anywhere in the world can attend, which is kind of cool. I do one Arthur's Memory Cafe sponsored by Arthur's Senior Care on the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month from around 1 to 2.30. And again, if you're interested in attending that, just reach out to me. Also want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, our global resource directory. We launched the last quarter of 2020, and it is really helping not only people living with the disease, but their families as well as professionals. Find and tap into services, products, and tools that many didn't know existed. I also want to shout out to Coral Health, who is still allowing people during the pandemic to download two of their um, apps. One is Music First, and the other is Coral Face. So you can go to Coral, that's C-O-R-O, health.com. So now let me go ahead and introduce you to our guest today. Our topic is going to be about dementia research during the pandemic and COVID and cognition. You know, what is going on? What's been happening? And we have no one better to talk to us about that but our good friend, Dr. William H. Fry II, who has his PhD, and he is the Senior Research Director at the Center for Memory and Aging at Health Partners Neuroscience Center, which is actually a beautiful building with fabulous services. So if you're not familiar with them, you'll want to check that out. Um, Dr. Fry developed an internasal method for bypassing the blood-brain barrier to treat neurological disorders while reducing unwanted side effects. Dr. Fry earned his BA in chemistry at Washington University and his PhD in biochemistry at Case Western Reserve University. Well, Dr. Fry, I am so excited to have you on the show today. You know, our history goes back quite a ways at your clinic. My mom even had her brain diagnosed by you upon autopsy, and you were so helpful with that. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. I can't wait to hear what has changed. I know you want to do a little PowerPoint uh, presentation, which I think will be really easy for our audience to follow. So if you want to go ahead and do that, and I am going to back out of the conversation so you have full view. Well, uh, thank you so much, Lori, and it is great to be able to talk with you today. As you know, uh, we're talking today about dementia research during the pandemic and uh, COVID-19 and cognition. And I'm going to start off today with just a, a brief 
mention of the patents that we have filed over many years. And when I say we, I'm really talking about uh, the nonprofit foundation that I work for that's associated with Health Partners and Regions Hospital here in St. Paul. And this began really as far back as 1989 when I first made the discovery of a new way of delivering drugs and natural therapeutics to the brain to treat Alzheimer's and other brain disorders. We were fortunate enough to receive a patent from the United States government on that intranasal method, which I'll be telling you about. We also received a patent on the use of intranasal insulin to treat Alzheimer's and Parkinson's shortly after that in 2001 and have received over the years many other patents, uh, fairly recently one on treating traumatic brain injury, others on the use of intranasal adult stem cells, stem cells derived from adult humans, to treat Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and other brain disorders, and then a series of patents related to treating these same disorders with an intranasal iron binding drug. So to get right into it, I'm often asked, why has it taken so long to develop a treatment for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other similar brain disorders? And the main reason really is that the brain is our most important organ. And in order to protect the brain, we have a blood-brain barrier. That is a specialized barrier in the blood vessels that go through to the brain to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the brain. And this barrier, which is not present in other organs of the body, helps to keep out of the brain things that might damage the brain. But in doing so, it really severely limits our ability to deliver therapeutics to the brain that could help treat these uh, terrible brain disorders. And that has really restricted and slowed down the development of treatments for brain disorders. Also, we know that when you administer a therapeutic or drug as a pill or a shot, that leads to those drugs going into the bloodstream. And the bloodstream goes to the liver, the kidneys, the heart, and the lungs, not just to the brain. And so any therapy delivered that way can cause adverse side effects on all those other organs. So uh, as I mentioned, I was the first to propose and develop this intranasal solution to the blood-brain barrier problem. And really, it was an unusual dream that I had that gave us the first clue of how to do this. I went to sleep one night in 1989, and I was very frustrated because I thought the way to treat Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and these other brain disorders was with the natural therapeutic proteins that our body makes. Some of these proteins, like nerve growth factor, have the ability to signal brain cells to replace parts that have been damaged or worn out and to stimulate brain cells to make new connections in the brain. And in addition, we know that it, the hormone insulin is very important because it controls the body's uptake and metabolism of blood sugar or glucose to provide energy to our cells all over the body, including the brain. And so I went to sleep and I had this dream and I was arguing with other researchers about how to treat these brain disorders. And I was saying, well, these natural proteins that our body makes would be a very good place to start. And they were all saying, well, that's not going to work because those proteins are big and charged and they're not likely to cross the blood-brain barrier. They were assuming, of course, that we would administer these as a shot or in some other way. And it occurred to me something that everyone knew back in the 1980s, which was that when harmful things got into our nose, sometimes those things could go into the brain without having to cross the blood-brain barrier. They would go to the brain by following the nerves involved in smell. And what occurred to me was when I had this dream just before I woke up was, you know, if bad things can get into the brain this way, why can't good things do it? I woke up, I was really excited because I realized this could be the answer to this blood-brain barrier problem. If you look at this slide, you can see that other people 
have thought about giving their therapeutics directly by injecting them into the brain intraparenchymally or injecting them into the cerebrospinal fluid that's in the ventricles of the brain, or maybe by injecting them near the spinal cord intrathecally or by lumbar puncture. These are really rather invasive methods. Some of them require neurosurgery, and that could lead to damage and the risk of infection. But I was very focused on the nasal cavity and the nerves involved in smell. And with this focus, I realized that without putting the drugs at high amounts into the bloodstream, we could simply administer them as nose drops or a nasal spray, and hopefully they would go directly to the brain along these nerve pathways. This would be non-invasive, and it would not put the drugs across the blood-brain barrier, it would bypass the blood-brain barrier entirely because we would not have to load up the bloodstream and then have the, the drugs go to the brain that way. And we have learned over the years that intranasal delivery results in a rapid delivery to the brain along both the olfactory nerves involved in smell and the trigeminal nerves that are involved in sensing other chemicals and once in the brain, these drugs could follow the blood vessels of the brain through the spaces around the blood vessels. They could go throughout the brain, but they would be on the, on the brain side of the blood-brain barrier. We would have avoided that barrier altogether. In addition, because we're not loading up the bloodstream with the drugs, it would really reduce the exposure of the drug to all the other organs, and it would reduce or eliminate unwanted side effects on the liver, the kidneys, the heart, and the lungs. Now, once we had developed this new way of getting drugs into the brain, if you take a look at Alzheimer's, and we'll start with Alzheimer's disease, we can see by the use of what's called a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan, a kind of brain scan, that in normal elderly humans, there is a lot of uptake of glucose into the brain. We see these dark red and orange and, and almost even brown areas. All of this represents a lot of blood sugar glucose being taken into the brain and metabolized by the brain to produce energy. That energy is used by the normal human brain to help carry out normal functions like memory and movement and other things and to help the brain make new parts to replace those that have worn out or been damaged by aging or disease. If we look at an Alzheimer's patient's brain, we see that people with Alzheimer's are really not taking up glucose normally. You can see how little glucose is being taken up compared to the normal brain. So their brain cells are starved for energy. And without that energy, it's difficult for people with Alzheimer's or other brain disorders that have this lack of energy to function. Now, I mentioned that insulin is the hormone that tells our cells to take up glucose or blood sugar to provide energy. And it's been shown that insulin signaling is reduced in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease leading some people to call Alzheimer's diabetes of the brain. Again, that leaves brain cells starved for energy and unable to function normally. Our discoveries covering intranasal delivery of insulin to the brain to treat Alzheimer's and Parkinson's have been followed by multiple human clinical trials. In the United States, six trials have been conducted in people with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's. And in Europe, especially Germany, five trials have been conducted in normal human adults who are healthy and have no problems. And these have demonstrated improved memory following intranasal insulin treatment without any change in the blood levels of insulin or glucose. That's very exciting because to see this improvement also very little side effect. The only side effect that's really been reported is a mild nasal irritation. 
So to have a treatment that uses a natural substance that's already in our body that can actually improve memory in people with Alzheimer's is very exciting. Now, I wanna point out that not everyone who has Alzheimer's shows improved memory when given intranasal regular insulin. People who have a gene alteration where they have what's called the APOE4 gene, actually those people only see improved memory if they are intranasally treated with long-acting insulin. There are lots of different types of insulin. So this is a complex story, but this is the basic findings that, that I want you to know about. Now, in connection with the fact that people with Alzheimer's don't have enough insulin signaling, we also know that people who have type 2 diabetes have twice the risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. And that's not surprising because diabetics also have a deficiency of insulin signaling, which is why they often are given uh, injections of insulin uh, to treat their diabetes. At this point, human studies are really needed to determine if intranasal insulin can reduce the risk of people with diabetes, uh, their risk of getting Alzheimer's. There are close to 30 million people just in this country alone with type 2 diabetes. So if intranasal insulin could reduce their risk of Alzheimer's, that would be very important. We do know from a study conducted at Harvard, I believe, that intranasal insulin does improve memory and cognition in people who have type 2 diabetes and do not have Alzheimer's. That is over the short term, but we don't know whether it would reduce their risk for Alzheimer's because that would require a longitudinal longer trial. Also, we believe that intranasal insulin can help people who have type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes. People with type 1 diabetes in particular are at risk of hypoglycemia unawareness. This means that suddenly their blood sugar levels can drop and they will not know that that's happening. And if they have type 1 with this hypoglycemia unawareness and no one is around, and no one finds them after they pass out, they might even die from that. We actually had received funding to carry out a trial to see if intranasal insulin would treat this problem. And we were going to do it with the International Diabetes Center that's part of Health Partners here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. But unfortunately, we were hit by the coronavirus pandemic early last spring, and that caused us to have to cancel this trial. Many trials around the world, of course, most trials were canceled, clinical trials, as a result of the pandemic. Now, I mentioned earlier that we had filed and received a patent on using intranasal insulin to also treat Parkinson's disease. Uh, we actually never had the funding to carry out a clinical trial in Parkinson's, but in 2019, just uh, less than two years ago, Harvard and the University of Massachusetts did test our intranasal insulin treatment in people with Parkinson's, and they reported from this initial trial that intranasal insulin helped to preserve verbal fluency and memory in people with Parkinson's, and also improve their movement and, their, and reduce their physical disability. This was very exciting. We do know that deep brain stimulation, a surgical procedure that helps many patients with Parkinson's, has been shown to act in part by increasing glucose metabolism in the brain. And this is consistent with our findings that intranasal insulin is likely to be beneficial. We ourselves more recently did receive funding to carry out our own intranasal insulin treatment in people with Parkinson's, and we began that trial last year. Again, unfortunately, that trial had to be suspended or paused due to the coronavirus pandemic for obvious safety reasons. We do hope to resume this trial, certainly before the end of this year, probably in the next three months, if we feel that it is safe to do so. We are continuing to raise funds to support this and other clinical trials that we plan to conduct to improve the treatment of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and other brain disorders. Now, intranasal insulin may also be helpful to treat other brain disorders. For example, 
epilepsy or seizures involves a decrease in the uptake of glucose and its metabolism. And we know that decreasing brain glucose metabolism in animals leads to seizures. So we do plan to conduct a clinical trial of intranasal insulin in people with seizures, if we can obtain the funding. And we also know that intranasal insulin greatly reduces or attenuates the response to stress, including the increase in the stress hormone cortisol. Cortisol is known to prevent glucose uptake into the brain. And since intranasal insulin has been shown in adult men to attenuate this uh, stress response and reduce cortisol, this may be a good way to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Finally, we're interested also in treating traumatic brain injury and concussion in people. And we showed with studies conducted at the U.S. Military Medical School that were done initially in rats before we can do them in humans. We have to show this is safe and effective in rats. That in fact, uh, intranasal insulin helps animals with a head injury to recover very dramatically. There are also reasons why we are interested in intranasal insulin for treating multiple sclerosis, but uh, we only have a limited amount of time today, so we won't be going into that. Now, in addition to the fact that people with Alzheimer's do not take up glucose normally and have a deficiency of brain cell energy, we also know that people who have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and many other brain disorders accumulate iron abnormally in the brain. Now, this does not have to do with how much iron you obtain in your diet. Obviously, we all need iron. We don't want to become anemic. And so this is unrelated to diet. This is more related to how the brain is handling iron and whether it is maintaining the proper levels of free iron or if that iron is accumulating abnormally, which we know that it is in these brain diseases. The problem with iron accumulating abnormally is that free iron can promote oxidative damage, which we showed many years ago, inactivates the key receptors required for memory and can also affect other receptors like those involved in movement and normal brain function. Fortunately, for many years, there has been a generic drug called deferoxamine. And this drug binds iron with very high affinity and it's been used in humans for several decades to treat iron overload in the bloodstream. In fact, in a two-year clinical trial in patients who had Alzheimer's disease, giving this iron-binding drug by intramuscular injection reduced their decline by 50%, which is really a big improvement. But unfortunately, giving it that way causes a number of side effects and getting it into the brain is difficult. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier well. It only survives in the bloodstream for about uh, 20 minutes is the half-life. So we've developed and patented an intranasal deferoxamine or iron-binding drug treatment for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other brain disorders. In animal studies, we've already shown that giving this iron-binding drug intranasally reduces memory loss in a mouse model of Alzheimer's, and it improves memory in normal mice who are perfectly healthy. We've also shown that it can treat Parkinson's disease in animals, both the kind of Parkinson's that's caused by toxins that can damage brain cells, dopamine brain cells, or the inherited form of Parkinson's. Researchers in Europe showed it protects against the damage in the inherited a form of Parkinson's in animals. Also, we've shown that when given to animals that have a stroke, it dramatically reduces their brain damage by 55%, and those animals don't become paralyzed and don't die from the stroke the way animals do who have not been given intranasal deferoxamine. So we're in the process now of talking to the FDA to get their approval to conduct clinical trials of this intranasal iron binding drug in people who have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other brain disorders as funding for those trials becomes available. 
I also want to tell you about another exciting treatment that has been developed for Parkinson's that was reported just in 2019, uh, the reference at the bottom there. We know that a protein called alpha-synuclein is found in the brain and the gut. And this protein normally helps nerve cells to be resistant to viral infection and the propagation of the virus. It accumulates in the enteric nervous system of the gut, but it can migrate from there to the brain, conferring immunity in advance of an infection. Unfortunately, in Parkinson's disease, this protein accumulates abnormally in the brain. And there is a new drug in development that might really help slow Parkinson's progression by targeting this protein found in the gut. And this uh, new treatment, we feel, might be helpful not only to treating the gut problems associated with Parkinson's, but potentially also the progression of Parkinson's disease itself. So there are a number of different types of treatments in development. Now I want to turn to the last type of treatment that I want to discuss, and that is the use of adult stem cells, stem cells taken from adult humans or adult animals. If we're treating animals, we would use the stem cells from animals. And Dr. Daniellen in Germany, who's our collaborator, has shown that stem cells obtained from the bone marrow of adults bypass the blood-brain barrier when being administered intranasally and target only the damaged areas of the brain in animals to treat Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other brain disorders. Intranasal stem cells are very anti-inflammatory, and all of these diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are inflammatory diseases. So these stem cells are anti-inflammatory, and they can also supply the brain what it needs to regenerate and treat these disorders. Here you see, following our discovery of this method, intranasal method for delivering and targeting adult stem cells to the brain, you see first our demonstrated treatment that we can treat Parkinson's in uh, animals, showing improved movement and getting rid of all the inflammation. Also, we can treat Alzheimer's in animals, showing improved memory and decreasing soluble amyloid. And researchers in the Netherlands have used our same treatment to treat uh, neonatal brain damage and neonatal ischemia. These would be disorders in, similar to cerebral palsy and other kinds of things. Uh, at Emory, researchers have used this treatment to treat stroke. Sweden, Dr. Franzen and others have shown the treatment of multiple sclerosis and improved recovery and remyelination by giving cells intranasally. At University of Chicago, researchers have used our intranasal cell method to treat brain tumors and even spinal cord injury. People are looking at the treatment with intranasal cell therapy. This has not been done in humans yet, but obviously that is the next step. Now, I've mentioned the coronavirus pandemic, but I want to say a few words about the possibility of using intranasal anti-inflammatory stem cells to treat the neurologic consequences of COVID-19. We know that COVID-19 and its virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, when people become infected, the virus initially accumulates in the nasal cavity. That's why they do nasal swabs to see if you have coronavirus. And from the nasal cavity, the virus can move through the nasopharynx down into the lungs and cause damage, inflammatory damage to the lungs. In addition to its inflammatory damage in the lungs that can lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, the virus can also go from the nose to the brain along the same pathways that I've just described to you that we're using to deliver therapeutics like insulin and the iron binding drug and adult stem cells into the brain. The virus is very inflammatory and produces proteins called cytokines that are inflammatory. And this can lead to not only inflammation and damage in the lungs, 
but also damage in the brain that can potentially lead to difficulty in the brain sensing of oxygen and the respiratory control center in the brain and can lead to problems with breathing, which kills many people who get coronavirus infection. Other neurologic consequences of the coronavirus infection are loss of smell. This often occurs as the first symptoms of COVID-19 infection, although you can get loss of smell from other reasons. Some people lose their taste. Some people get brain fog or problems with cognition. And even encephalitis and stroke can occur in response to coronavirus infection. In addition to these acute inflammatory problems in the brain that happen during the infection, there can also potentially be very long-term neurologic consequences to being infected with coronavirus. It's possible that giving stem cells intranasally may be able to address those problems. It's important to realize in the previous major pandemic that was suffered in the United States back in 1918, many of the people who did not die in the 1918 viral pandemic but who got the virus and survived, went on years later to develop Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is an inflammatory brain disease, just like Alzheimer's. So intranasal anti-inflammatory stem cells delivered directly to the area where the virus accumulates in the nose may help to treat and prevent both the acute and long-term brain damage associated with COVID-19 and its pro-inflammatory, uh, what's called cytokine storm. Intranasal stem cells can hopefully function as the fire trucks chasing after the pro-inflammatory virus and its inflammatory proteins as they migrate along these nerves into the brain. So our intranasal approach to treating brain disorders, central nervous system disorders, greatly expands the kinds of molecules, drugs, and what we call biologics or natural therapeutics that can be used to treat brain disorders while increasing the safety and efficacy of the treatment. So I would like to stop now. And Lori, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Lots going on, Dr. Fry. I mean, I, I'm like so excited over so many things. I hadn't really heard about the iron and it was nice even to hear about the gut issues because for so long that was just poo-pooed. There's no issues. There's no relevance there. Right. And then with the stem cells as well. And to see how your um, technique and process is being used all around the world is really kudos to you. And thank God you had the dream. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Laurie. And let me just say in uh, response to what you said about how many things are poo-pooed when they are first suggested. Unfortunately, this is very common in the development of new medical therapies. I know there was a philosopher, I believe it was William James, an American philosopher who said, and he wasn't talking about medical therapies, but he said, when first a new idea is proposed, many people say, oh, that's ridiculous, that couldn't possibly be true, and they poo-poo this idea. Then as the evidence begins to accumulate, those same critics say things like, oh yes, uh, but we knew that all the time. And then later, as it really becomes successful, they say, oh yes, and I invented that. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a human nature kind of thing. And when we first proposed intranasal delivery of therapeutics to the brain, we were told by the National Institutes of Health not to reapply to them for funding until we got someone who knew something about biology to work with us, because this idea that you would put something in the nose and it would magically appear in the brain just was crazy. <laughs> wow. So this, this is the, the history of science, I think, regardless of, you know, it's a human nature thing. I totally agree. And I think it, I think it just uh, ripples the whole effect of society and everything we think about. Yes. But it is human nature to change and to progress. And in order to do that, that takes new thoughts and new thought leaders and people with persistence that don't take no for an answer. So thank you. 
for all you've done to change our world. This is really exciting. You know, I know you had mentioned, you know, with COVID, it was really hard to get anything done trial-wise. And I've heard a lot of trials that have literally totally had to shut down. Was there anything that your trials could still process? Were they still processing data at all? Or did does when things shut, they just shut? No, we're able to do a lot of kinds of research during the pandemic. It was just the types of clinical trials that required people to actually come in and physically interact with our researchers, you know, in the same room kind of thing. But unfortunately, the way clinical trials were designed before the pandemic, people had no idea this was going to happen. Uh, One of the things the pandemic did do, though, is it prompted us and others to develop new ways of testing patients and interacting with patients that could be done virtually. And, but, but you have to make those decisions before beginning the trial. You can't really very effectively and legitimately start changing your methodology in the middle of a trial. <laughs> but then, of course, we also had our preclinical studies uh, that we might be doing in mice or rats. Those we could continue. And so, and there were many other things, you know, it takes a long time to analyze data and to publish results. And so we were busy doing those things, as well as applying for new funding, you know, for new things that we want to do. So we were pretty busy during the pandemic. (laughs) It sounds like there was a lot to do. And again, it opened up the mind in terms of new ways of of doing business and getting things done, which I think is great. Yes, yes. You know, I love that telehealth has kind of stepped into the the everyday plate now, and I don't think it's going away. No, no, it definitely is not. Yep. Wonderful. Now, out of all of these things that you talked about, and there was a lot, what, what excites you the most? Well, you know, I'm honestly excited about all of them. It's hard to uh, pin it down. One thing that I feel uh, just, I talked a lot about the intranasal insulin, which I believe is going to be beneficial in lots of different disorders. Really, I would say that's the one that, because it's already been through human clinical trials, because we know it's safe from, at least from the data available, it appears to be safe. We're really hoping that, that that will be something that can be moved forward. For various reasons, I'm, I think that we may move forward faster using that for concussion and traumatic brain injury than for many of the other things. It really just depends on where the funding comes from. I also think the combination of intranasal insulin with the intranasal iron binding drug is going to be more powerful than either one alone. I believe there is going to be synergy between these two treatments where one treatment benefits the effectiveness and increases the effectiveness of the other. The stem cells, of course, are very exciting. And uh, we are in contact with a number of stem cell companies uh, around the world who are quite interested in the possibility of using their proprietary stem cells for treating brain disorders. Up until now, most stem cell therapies have focused on what they saw as easier problems to deal with, treating things like maybe arthritis or treating um, heart disease, something where they don't have to deal with the blood-brain barrier. But now that they've seen what we've shown and others using our intranasal stem cell treatment, they are becoming interested. And because of the fact that this is regenerative medicine, and has the potential. These stem cells are like little doctors. They are smart cells. When they go into the brain from the nose, they don't go all over the brain. They only go to the areas of damage. They eliminate the inflammation when they get to that area. They look around like in Parkinson's, they say, okay, what's missing? Oh, there's not enough dopamine. Well, even though we're stem cells from bone marrow, even though we've never made dopamine before, we're going to start making dopamine and releasing it in this part of the brain because that's what's needed. And sure enough, they do that. They also release uh, neurotrophic factors, nerve growth factors that specifically protect dopamine cells. And the animals start moving again. So that's very exciting. Again, the, the idea of using this 
to you know, treat the neurologic consequences of coronavirus. All of these things are really very exciting to me. Yeah, when you were talking about the injections into the brain, I'm thinking, ouch, you know, (laughs) (laughs) how uncomfortable that would be versus just a a nasal spray or doing this in a different fashion, how much easier it would be. I would think it would be less expensive. And yeah, oh my gosh, way less expensive, you know. Um, And not only that, it turns out that if you cut into the brain to implant, stem cells with neurosurgery and all of that, that causes a kind of inflammation that actually kills the cells you just implanted. So those cells tend to only last for days or maybe a few weeks. Whereas when you give the cells intranasally in animals, you still see those stem cells there more than six months later. So they, because you've not caused any damage, they're going in to get rid of the inflammation and the damage. So you're correct that there's so many advantages to this approach. Yeah, I just, like I said, I I was just fascinated at all of the different things with epilepsy and the post-traumatic stress and um, you had mentioned the concussions where I can see sports stepping up and investing in this because they want to protect their business and they know that this is a, a huge thing and our government should with our you know, men and women overseas protecting us or now even yes. on, our, on our own ground, you know, this becoming more of an issue and, and people not understanding. I mean, car accidents, there's so many different things that come into play with this, but if we can get a, an actual field of interest that says, hey, this this really is an important thing. Because I know it's hard sometimes to get everybody on board. Yes, it is. And I think you're right. You know, there's so many co- causes of, of uh, concussion and traumatic brain injury. I mean, I never played football. I've, as an adult, not had a car accident or anything. But just as a child, you know, I remember the first head injury I had. I was on the back of a friend's bicycle and he lost control of the bike and jumped off. And that left me to be the one to hit the telephone pole. (laughs) Another time, my older brother, we were playing with croquet balls and mallets in the basement. He hit a croquet ball on the floor. It hit one of the mallets on the floor, flew up in the air and hit me in the forehead. I mean, the fact that I'm still partially normal (laughs) and functioning is kind of remarkable. But, you know, as children, there are lots of concussions and head injuries. And we know that concussion and head injury can increase our risk for things like Alzheimer's later on. If you're knocked unconscious, these are not good things for you. So the more we can do to develop treatments for all of these disorders, the better. Yeah. Well, I know you had mentioned even brain cancer and and tumors and stuff, and that's what my dad died of. And I remember the doctor saying this probably goes back to an old accident he had when he was a child, when he got kicked by a horse. Now, I don't know if that's true or philosophies Mm -hmm. have changed on that, but, you know, it sticks in the back of my mind going, well, that's kind of interesting. And you know, the cell therapy field, not only do we have adult stem cells from adults, But we also have a kind of cell called a natural killer cell. And those cells are good at killing cancer cells. The studies that have been done intranasally so far at University of Chicago and uh, other places have looked at stem cells given intranasally and found they target brain tumor cells and also can reduce the size of tumors, et cetera. So there's a lot of potential for development uh, there. Wonderful. I always want to kind of bring it back to the the dementia realm again. And COVID, we're just starting to see some of the ripple effects that were apparent, you know, and I think that's going to keep rolling out. Do you think people with dementia faced more unique problems than the average bear getting ill with COVID? Yes, I do think so. Because if you already have a problem in the brain, and then you get coronavirus, and the virus causes the production of these inflammatory proteins called cytokines in the nose. We know that those proteins will go from the nose to the brain along the nerves involved in smell. And uh, this is not going to be good for people, for anyone, but especially people 
who are dealing with an inflammatory brain disorder like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. We have to think too, if you think about the connection between chickenpox and shingles. So we know that people who get chickenpox as children, which I certainly had, and recover from it, that the virus that causes the chickenpox, even though you've recovered from the chickenpox, stays in your body. And when you become 70 or 80, that different things can reactivate that virus and lead to you getting this painful disorder called shingles. Fortunately, there is a vaccination to help prevent that. But similarly, if you get coronavirus, even if you don't die from it, and even if your symptoms are not terrible, there is the possibility that virus will also stay in your system and may be reactivated later to cause inflammatory brain disorders, whether Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or other things. So I think this virus, you know, because it's accumulating in the nose in particular, uh, you know, and we've known viruses can go from the nose to the brain since the early 1900s, really. So this is a, a serious concern to me and to our researchers uh, at Health Partners Neuroscience. Well, you make me nervous now when you brought up chicken pox, because I had them five times when I was a kid. And the, my mom would bring me into the doctor and say, she's got them again. And the doctor's like, she can't have them again. And he's like, oh my God, she's got them again. <laughs> <laughs> and I've kind of poo-pooed taking the, the shingles uh, vaccine, but maybe I should rethink that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would talk to your doctor about that. <laughs> Oh, gosh. But it, that's interesting insight, though, in terms of, the, again, just saying there's so much that we don't know. And, you know, a person, too, with dementia, if and when they get any type of disease, the, the additional stress that that causes them. Yes. Really and stress, stress by itself is a serious problem because stress elevates the stress hormone cortisol and cortisol blocks the uptake of glucose that you need for energy in the brain, in particularly in the area involved in memory. The hippocampus is one of our essential memory areas. So stress is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's not good for any of us, but no, um, dementia no. gets even more complicated. And then when they're alone and feeling abandoned because their loved one can't even go to the, the doctor oh, yes. the hospital with them, that's really difficult. In wrapping up, is there anything that you would recommend that people do to try to reduce their odds of getting dementia? I mean, I know yes. it, it doesn't have any borders and it picks whoever the heck it likes, it seems like like no matter who we are. Yes, there are a number of things. And let me say, first of all, for people who didn't notice on the first slide, I'm not a physician or an MD. I'm a PhD medical researcher. So for medical advice about your particular condition, definitely talk to your own doctor or come in and see one of our neurologists at uh, Health Partners. Now, in terms of reducing your risk for getting Alzheimer's disease or other brain disorders, I want to first say exercise, regular exercise is really, really beneficial. If you can get your breathing and your heart rate up with exercise three times a week for 45 minutes each time by walking, by swimming, by doing yoga, by doing any number of types of exercise, there's so many, bicycling, anything. This is really important and really helpful because it causes your body to produce therapeutic proteins that are helpful to your brain. The second thing is diet. The Mediterranean diet, which most people are familiar with, is a very good diet to try to emulate or to follow. There is the MIND diet, which is just a modification of the Mediterranean diet. These are very important for reducing your risk. Reducing stress, which we talked about already, is also important. You can do that by what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction or by meditation. I learned meditation many years ago from my mother, who was a close friend of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who taught the Beatles to meditate, <laughs> and uh, etc. There's so many ways to reduce stress. Physical exercise helps to reduce stress, you know, regular physical exercise. Also, you don't want to become deficient in vitamin D, in thyroid hormone, 
or other kinds of things that the brain really needs. And the best way to avoid becoming deficient is to check with your doctor and see if getting a blood test every couple of years is a good idea so that if you do become deficient in thyroid hormone or vitamin D or B12 or some other critical thing that's important to memory, that your doctor finds out about it and treats it. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Fry, again, I thank you and the uh, Memory and Aging uh, Center at Health Partners for all the work you guys are doing. Your neuroscience uh, center is something else. If you haven't seen it, folks, you, you have to check it out. They just do a fabulous, fabulous job. Again, this, this show was coordinated with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Caring and Coping uh, series during the pandemic. Now, to get a hold of the Center for Memory and Aging at Health Partners and Neuro Center, we'll go ahead and post that up. It's a long link, so I'm not going to read it out and have you write it down. But you also uh, work with the Alzheimer's Research Center itself. I mean, that's where yes. you're the senior director. A lot of people might not know that you do the brain autopsies there. I'm assuming you still do that. Yes, we do do brain autopsies on people who've died with Alzheimer's and other dementing illnesses. If you want to call versus click it on the website, the main number for the Center on Memory and Aging at 651 651- Four nine five six three zero six, and the Regents Hospital Foundation. You can call them directly as well at six five one two five four two three seven six. And we're also going to put up the um, email contact. Will be Christine Polkrebeck, and we will post that for you as well. But. She is the safe gate to get to Dr. Fry. <laughs> so and she's, she's a wonderful, wonderful soul. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate, again, your time with us today. Dr. Fry, this has been, this has been wonderful, very informative. Thank you, Lori. And I want to thank our audience as well. I hope you like, click, and share and spread the word of the wonderful work that Dr. Fry and the Center for Memory and Aging with Health Partners Neuroscience Center is doing, and specifically their Alzheimer's Research Center. Again, thank you so much. It was fun talking to you again. Thank you, Laurie, and thanks for everything you do. Okay. Well, keep, you know, I'm out there trying to make you it. You sure different. are. You're out there succeeding. <laughs> okay, take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.